this is an exciting Sunday. It's an exciting passage that we come to today in our series in Acts, Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the first half of Acts 2 this morning. We began our series in Acts last week, and now we're looking at Acts 2 verses 1 to 21 today. And the title I've given to this morning's message is The God Who Keeps His Promises. The God Who Keeps His Promises. So if you have a Bible, please open up to Acts 2. We're going to work our way through uh, this account of what happened at Pentecost together. But first of all, uh, think about this. We live, don't we, I think, in an ever more instant delivery culture. Whether we subscribe to Amazon Prime or we pay extra for express next day delivery, or we hop in our car and we drive many miles in order to pick something up right away, maybe something that years ago people would have waited many days, How many of us have had that sense of alarm when we're trying to get hold of something and it says, this will take five to seven days to come, and we're not used to that. We live in an instant delivery culture. And I'm certainly not complaining about some of that ease. But I think it's still almost always the case that the best things are usually the things we have to wait for. If you think about some of the best things that you've really had to wait for, maybe it was waiting for Christmas or waiting for someone's birthday, Maybe it was waiting for your wedding day, or a family reunion, or the keys to a new house, or waiting for a visit from a friend you haven't seen for years. As we enter Acts 2, the disciples have been praying and waiting for 10 long days, waiting for something incredible. 10 days earlier, Jesus had given them the most incredible commission. He had ascended out of their sight into heaven but not before giving them this amazing commission, a commission to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But he also promised that before they could be his witnesses, they needed to wait to receive power for the Holy Spirit was to come upon them. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus had told them, not many days from now. Just imagine how those words, not many days from now, must have stirred their sense of anticipation and excitement, maybe even nervousness, to breaking point. Particularly because this was not the first time they'd heard such a promise, although now it came with a greater imminency. But many times across the previous three years, they had heard this kind of promise of the outpouring of the Spirit. From John the Baptist's first words about the Messiah, Luke 3, 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then they heard Jesus himself promising to send the helper. John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But of course, it wasn't only that, not only three years of promises. The promise of the coming of the Spirit went back much further still. 
way back many centuries, deep into the Old Testament, back to promises like Isaiah 44 verse 2, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. From the promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, to Ezekiel's vision of a valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, where the Lord God said to the dry dead bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. So the sense of anticipation then in these 120 believers must have been reaching fever pitch as they waited together in Jerusalem, just as Jesus had instructed them to do. Witnesses there that day might have said, you you could have cut the air with a knife. Their excitement must have been tangible, along perhaps with their sense of bewilderment and even fear about what would happen next. We, We mustn't forget, they've been told to wait together in the very city that less than two months earlier had killed the Lord himself. Jerusalem was not a safe place for followers of Jesus to be. But there they are, and wait they do. Chapter 1 verse 13 tells us they wait in the upper room where they were staying, devoting themselves day after day to prayer. All of this is the backdrop to what now takes place in Acts 2. Now just to say, I've got to confess, I was wrestling somewhat this week with how much of this chapter to cover because it's really all one piece. One great and eventful day, certainly right from verse 1 to 41. This is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the greatest days in history. A day that changed the world forever and one which we as Christians live now forevermore in the good of. But I decided this morning, let's focus on verses 1 to 21. We're going to come back next week to the second half of the chapter. But this morning as we walk through these 21 verses together... I've just got two headings, two very simple questions for us to answer. One of them is even in the passage asked by the onlookers on that day. The first question is, what happened at Pentecost? And the second is, what does this mean? First of all, what happened at Pentecost? Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. First of all, it's easy for us to forget that Pentecost was actually an annual event in the Jewish calendar. When we think of Pentecost, we just think about Acts 2. When the disciples thought Pentecost, at least before this day happened, they thought about a 1,500-year-old Jewish festival celebrated every year 50 days after Passover. Pentecost literally means 50th day. This was one of the three major Jewish festivals, and the best-attended one because of the traveling conditions being so good at that time of year. So there's many, many people coming to Jerusalem every year for Pentecost. And already in that, I think we can see God's hand in the timing of what's about to take place. At the one time of the year when the city was most jam-packed with Jewish pilgrims from many different nations. And that's, I think, not the only providential sign of God's perfect timing as well. Because Pentecost was also known as the festival of first harvest, a time of thanksgiving for the harvested crops. And as we're going to see, as this vast international audience gathers to hear 
Peter's first sermon is going to result very fittingly in a huge harvest of people. 3,000 new believers in one day and the birth of the church. God's careful planning and timing is, as always, impeccable and awesome to behold. So there they are. The festival going on outside, the disciples and the believers inside, probably all 120 of them, waiting and praying and wondering what was going to happen next. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Suddenly, the Spirit comes down. And the first thing Luke describes is the sound. It was like a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were staying. You think of a gale here, not a gentle breeze. God may sometimes come in a gentle whisper, but not this time. The Spirit's arrival sounds like a hurricane has entered the building. That's not to say their robes were flapping about. It's the sound that Luke is commenting on here. It's the first thing that happens, the sound. This noise like a mighty rushing wind, which would perhaps already begin to give them clues as to what was taking place. Because first of all, in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit, wind, and breath are all identical. Exactly the same. So that the two of them were very closely associated in their thinking, wind and spirit. Something you see Jesus himself referring to in John 3 when he compares the spirit's work to the wind that blows wherever it wishes. And secondly, the sound of this mighty wind filling the house may well have conjured up in their minds thoughts back to stories of the temple being filled with the glory of God and and his presence coming into his house. But there's a really important difference here too. This time the Spirit of God is coming not to fill bricks, but people. Consecrating a brand new temple, God's own people. So first of all, there's this deafening sound. Second, Luke tells us what it looks like. It looked like fire. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And I think if they were in any doubt about what the wind noise was... These tongues that look like fire would surely have convinced them, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the coming of the Spirit. Because all through the Old Testament, fire was a powerful symbol of God's presence. From the burning bush, which Moses saw, to the pillar of fire leading them out of Egypt, to to the Lord descending on Mount Sinai in fire, to the fire that was always kept burning in the altar, in the temple, representing God's holy and purifying presence. Wherever the Lord himself chose to come down and personally dwell, there was often fire. God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4 says. But again, there are differences here from those Old Testament appearances as well. In the Old Testament, the fire of God's presence would usually rest in just one location. Close to, but set apart from other people, from the people. God was literally a consuming fire to those who in the the Old Testament got too close to him or approached him in an unholy way as Aaron's sons unhappily found out. 
as they tried to offer an unholy sacrifice in the tabernacle, and the fire came out and consumed them. It didn't pay to get close to the fire of God's holy and glorious presence. But now, these 120 gathered together in Acts 2, they see divided tongues of fire that approach them and come to rest on them, on each and every one of them. God is drawing near to dwell in them. It really is mind-bogglingly amazing and I think a little bit terrifying. We, today we get so used to the idea of the Holy Spirit living in every Christian. But when you think about who he is and how holy he is, just wow. And the fact that this can now be happening really is testament to what's taken place between God's holy presence in the Old Testament being utterly unapproachable in the tabernacle to now his Holy Spirit coming down to live in us. In between those two lies the cross and Christ's perfect substitutionary sacrifice. It's only because the penalty of our sins has been completely paid and only because we've been clothed in Christ's spotless righteousness that Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. This really is incredible. And then after the wind and the fire, the next thing the Spirit brings is speech. The Spirit gave them utterance, verse 4. And the utterance he gives them are words about the mighty works of God, verse 11. Now certainly there are... All sorts of things, a number of things happening here at Pentecost that are one-time events. Events that simply cannot be repeated in the same way today because they already happened on that day. The day of Pentecost is no more repeatable than the day of Jesus' birth or death or resurrection. Like them, it's a one-time salvation historical event. And yet, the fact that the Spirit here enables the disciples to testify clearly and powerfully about Jesus, that's certainly not a one-time event. In fact, nearly every time we read later on in the book of Acts of the believers being freshly filled with the Spirit, the result is they carry on boldly speaking about Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, one of the key marks of a Spirit-filled Christian is that we speak about Jesus. and We sing about him as well at home, in the church, and wherever we go. To be filled with the Spirit is to have the Word of Christ dwell in our hearts and be on our lips. That's one of the key fruits of the Spirit's work in us. What is more uncommon and unique here at Pentecost, though, is that the Holy Spirit suddenly enables these 120 believers to do this bold speaking about Jesus in languages they never knew before. And this, this is clearly somewhat different as well, to the tongues that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. There in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the gift of tongues as being a humanly unintelligible prayer language given to edify and build up the one who's praying. 1 Corinthians 14, 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. The gift of, the gift of tongues is one of the many good gifts that the Spirit continues to distribute as he sees fit today, giving some gifts to some Christians and other gifts to other Christians. And those later chapters of 1 Corinthians are so full of help and encouragement on the different spiritual gifts. 
But this here in Acts 2 is somewhat different. This is a sudden ability to speak in other known languages, other known tongues. It's the ability to speak in different human languages, known by different people that are there that day in the crowd, but not known by the ones that are speaking. And it's for, as well, here's another difference, it's for the edification of others rather than the speaker. It's miraculously intelligible speech in this multilingual setting for the purpose of international gospel proclamation. Here, here then, too, is somewhere where I think we can go unhelpfully astray in reading Acts 2 if we find ourselves fixated too much on the tongue-speaking, as if that's the most important thing going on here. It, it isn't. Actually, the most important fruit of the Spirit's work on display here is the believer's newfound boldness, their ability to speak boldly and clearly about Jesus. That's the focus of the Spirit's empowering work here. It just, it's just that he also miraculously enables them to do it in many different languages as well, proving on that day by doing so that this new message of theirs really is intended for all peoples and nations as well. In fact, what's happening here is nothing less than a deliberate and dramatic reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel all the way back in Genesis 11. There, uh, in the words of one, of one of my study Bibles, it says that back at Babel, the nations of the earth were divided by language, unable to come together as a result of their rebellion against God. But with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the curse of Babel begins to unravel. The coming of the Spirit shows that God's salvation is now flowing out to people from every nation, tribe, and language. That's why as we journey through Acts, we're going to see two more unique and unrepeatable mini outpourings of the Spirit. Happening each time the gospel crosses one of these national ethnic Boundaries, moving from believing Jews in Acts 2 to believing Samaritans in Acts 8 to newly believing Gentiles in Acts 10. Each time the, the gift of tongues is given there to prove to even the doubting apostles that the gospel and the gift of the Spirit really are for all peoples and nations and destined to reach the ends of the earth. All of this is what the crowds in Jerusalem are witnessing and hearing that day. Okay, well, let's read on. Let's see how they respond. In one word, they respond with astonishment. Verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, maybe you've had the experience of holidaying in a foreign country where they speak a different language. If you have, you'll know what it's like in crowded places. You hear all sorts of conversations taking place. Maybe you recognize a few words, the odd sentence, because you learned a bit in school or you've been uh, practicing with Duolingo before you went on holiday. Some of these international Jewish visitors would have known a bit of Greek as a second language. But imagine being in France, for instance, casually listening in in the, on, in the background on the the hum, the background hum of lots of conversations that you mostly don't understand. Maybe you recognize a few words, bonjour and bicyclette and baguette. That's the kind of extent of my French 
But then all of a sudden, right there in the middle of Paris, imagine you hear loud and clear someone declaring something excitedly in perfect English. And then imagine looking around to see that other people, other international visitors around you from all over the world, are hearing other speakers announce exciting things in their language as well. How would you respond? Well, Luke tells us that they were amazed, verse 7, and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And then comes the vital question that leads uh, to the second of our two headings this morning. What does this mean? Luke tells us all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, oh, they're filled with new wine. Now, already we've seen some clues to what's going on. We've made some deductions based on the imagery of the wind and the fire and the gift of languages. And maybe some in the crowds were beginning to make those connections as well. But now, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit for the very first time, stands up to deliver his first sermon. And he gives in this sermon an even clearer and richer explanation of all that's taking place And even more importantly, he explains what it means. His explanation actually runs all the way from verses 14 to 40. And in it, he gives two answers to what this all means. We're only going to look at the first answer this week. We'll come back next week for the other one. But in some way, the essence of his answer all through his sermon is simply this. God has kept his promises. God has kept his promises. Verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sometimes in life, people overpromise and underdeliver. Life is filled with many of these kinds of disappointments. Maybe that's how your life feels at times. Maybe a parent made a promise to you many years ago but then failed to deliver on it. 
Maybe a fiancé or a spouse promised to stay with you through thick and thin, but they didn't remain true to their promise. Perhaps you even have made promises to yourself about things that you would and wouldn't do, and even you didn't deliver on your promise. Life is filled with these kinds of disappointments. But God never disappoints. God never ever over promises and under delivers. He always keeps his promises, every single one of them, always. Even the most incredible promises of all. Even the promises that, that seem to want to stretch our imaginations and our faith to breaking point. In the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Surely this promise in Joel would have stretched an Old Testament Israelite's imagination to breaking point. How on earth was God going to do this? But now here is Peter standing up and saying, this is that. What you're witnessing here today, this is God delivering that almost unbelievable promise. Before your very eyes, in your very ears, the last days have come and God has poured out his spirit. Why does he call them the last days? Especially when this is 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years later, we're still here living in the last days. Why the last days? It's because the last days are not so much a reference to a length of time. Like I might say, these are the last few days I have at work before I go on holiday. I'm not actually going on holiday, but I could say that. In the Bible, no, the, the last days refers not to a particular length of time, but to a particular period in time. The period between Christ's first and second comings. Before God laid the earth's foundations, he mapped out a timeline to redeem his creation. Many pivotal events recorded in the Old Testament, were, they were essential points in that plan of salvation. All of them building up to the most important event of all, the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And literally the final Salvation historical event on the timeline, if you could picture me drawing out a timeline this morning, literally the final event between Jesus returning to heaven and his coming back again is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now, already in Acts 2, even that has happened. The Holy Spirit's outpouring has ushered in the last days. And now all that remains is for the Spirit to build his church and then Christ will return. We don't know how long these last days will last, but we're living in them right now, and we have been for 2,000 years. Here, then, is why it's a mistake for us to ever wish for another Pentecost. Because the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2 was a unique event in redemptive history. It was the dawning of this new age in which we now live. For a Christian to wish for another Pentecost, so that we could have the Spirit come down upon us like he did in Acts 2 would be like a person saying they wish that Christ would die for them again so that they could be forgiven again. The, the fact is Christ has already died for us, bestowing on us all of the benefits, and the Spirit has already been poured out on his church and is today already indwelling every believer and bestowing his benefits. Now that is not to say that we can't and, and should not pray that he'd revive us, strengthen us, and freshly fill us, that, that he would empower us 
to keep in step with him, to grow in his spiritual fruits and to grow in his spiritual gifts and have his word dwell more richly in us. Desiring those things is a spirit-given desire. But we don't need to and we can't pray for another Pentecost because it's already happened once and for all and every Christian forevermore lives in the good of what happened on that day. The truth of it is there has never been a more privileged time to be alive than in this present gospel age in which we now live. Because today, and every day for the last 2,000 years, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We live right now in the gospel age, in the church age, in the new covenant age. We live in the age of the Spirit. And that means, finally this morning, as Joel's prophecy goes on to explain, we live in the age where every single believer can know God intimately for themselves. And where every single believer can personally testify about him and make him known. There's such a contrast here between us and God's Old Testament people. There there are many parallels between God's Old Testament people and and us in New Testament times, New Covenant times. But there's a great contrast here. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was a rare gift. Only given to a few people and usually only for short periods of time. Only on kings and prophets and people called into very special roles and even then only for a specific season and moment in their lives. In Numbers 11, Moses, who was filled with the Spirit, was exhausted from having to lead the people on his own. And so elders were appointed to help him and as they were appointed, they too were filled with the Spirit and they began to prophesy. But the people didn't know what to make of this, of other people other than Moses prophesying, being filled with the Spirit. And so the people complained. But Moses responded, Numbers 11, verse 29, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Well, amazingly, that is what's happened here in Acts 2. The gift that was once reserved for just a few has now been given to all Christian believers. It's just as Jeremiah once foresaw as he looked forward to the new covenant to come. Jeremiah 31, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Today, through the gift of the Spirit, every one of us can know God in Christ personally for ourselves. Not not secondhand through kings or prophets or priests. They shall all know me, God says, from the least to the greatest. And today, every one of us can tell others too from first-hand experience about God's mighty works. For God's promise in Joel 2, quoted here by Peter, is that a time would come when all God's people, men and women, old and young, rich and poor, would prophesy. And now Peter's standing up before this great crowd in Jerusalem and he's stating that's what you're hearing exactly today. 120 believers, men and women, old and young, all acting right now as spirit-filled witnesses, all prophesying and proclaiming the mighty works of God, all of them witnessing to what God has done. Yes, there is a 
more specific gift of prophecy, again talked about in 1 Corinthians 14. But I don't think that's what Peter is describing here. Here, it's, it's a bigger, broader, Joel 2, Acts 2 sense of prophecy. All believers having the privilege of being like a prophet because they themselves now know God intimately. And they're able to tell others about him by passing on faithfully what they know and have experienced personally according to his words. How ought we to respond to all of this this morning then? First of all, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, before you can do anything else, you need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That is, as we're going to see next Sunday, what the first response was of 3,000 people on this day of Pentecost after they witnessed what was taking place and they, they heard Peter's explanation. Chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Nothing else here, nothing else I'm about to say can be applied to you until you turn and call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And if you're, not, if you're here this morning and you're not sure what that means, or you're not sure if you've ever done that, then please do come and talk to us afterwards. We, we would love to answer your questions, to tell you what we know, to tell you about Jesus, to explain what it means to, to turn and put your faith in him for the very first time. We're here to help. But how should those of us who were already saved and those of us who were eager for the Spirit's work in our life and more of the Spirit's work in our life, how should we respond this morning? Well, I've got four brief ways. First of all, let's rejoice in what we have been given. Let's rejoice in what we have received. I, I understand why sometimes as Christians we long for a more powerful work of the Spirit in our lives. And certainly he stirs our hearts to want to grow in a multitude of ways. But let's not miss the fact that because of what happened at Pentecost, wherever we feel like we're at in our Christian lives right now, we already have the highest spiritual privilege that could ever be given to a person. We have the Spirit of God himself with us and in us. Secondly, Let's recognize the assurance that this gift of God's Spirit brings to us. If we have believed on Christ, we have received the Spirit. And if we have received the Spirit, then Christ has marked us out as his own. And he will never, ever let us go. We read in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit is the down payment. The down payment of our future heavenly joy. A taste of heaven come to live in our hearts today. He is the seal and the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it when Christ returns. So let's enjoy and embrace the assurance that comes with the gift of the Spirit. Thirdly, let's pursue a deeper knowledge of God and intimacy with Him. The Spirit has been given to us so that we ourselves, every one of us, might know God and walk with him personally, even in the seeming mundaneness and messiness of our everyday lives. The spirit within us, he promises to illumine our hearts as we read God's word. He, 
He promises to communicate the love of God in Christ to us. He helps us to pray and prays for us when we don't know what to pray. He's the helper that Christ promised to send us. Let's embrace his empowering daily help. Let's gladly and eagerly pursue a closer walk with God with his help each and every day. And fourthly and finally, let's ask the Holy Spirit to empower us for service in a multitude of ways. But let's especially ask that he would help us to speak much of Jesus. Let's ask that he would help us to speak of to speak much of the mighty and marvelous works that Christ has done, to, to talk in everyday conversations about our own experience of knowing Jesus. Next week at David's baptism, before we baptize him, he's going to stand up and tell us about his experience of becoming a Christian and of knowing Jesus for himself. Let's, let's ask that the Spirit would help us to talk like that in everyday conversations and pass on to others the things we have learned through his work and in his word about him. All of these things the Spirit is given to us to enable us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the God who always keeps his promises. No matter how great and wonderful and mind-boggling those promises might be, Father, we thank you today for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you have given us one of the most precious gifts in all creation. The best gift that you could give us. Lord, we thank you that Christ has ascended and poured out his spirit on his church so that now every Christian believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We thank you that through him we can know you personally for ourselves and that we can make you known to others. That we can speak from first-hand experience and give a first-hand testimony of who you are and what you have done, what you have done for us. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us to rejoice every day in the gift that you've given to us, that you have given us your spirit as our comforter and helper, empowerer and strengthener. Lord, we pray, please help us to glorify you in our bodies, to serve you in your church and witness to you in this world, all in the Spirit's strength and power, we pray. Amen.